so good to see everybody back with us today. Uh, we've had our little congregation spread out all across the country, literally. It's good to have everybody back. This morning we are going to finish up First Peter, so that'll bring us to chapter 5. And it is a short chapter, um, but I think it's going to take all the time we've got. So we'll get started. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Great exhortation from Peter to leaders in the church. And that's really who he's talking to here. Um, it's effectual for the leaders, but it's also effectual for y'all. Like everybody in the church should be holding the leaders to this standard. Uh, not doing it for dishonest gain, in some translations, filthy lucre. Um, not um, serving uh, by compulsion, not being forced into this role, but willingly. And we want to see all of these things in the church leadership. So verse 1, he says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, the words pastor, we see sometimes as shepherd, bishop, you'll see as overseer sometimes, an elder, just meaning mature leader. Uh, I think they all refer to the same type of church office, a respected person in the church who is leading people, shepherding the flock of God. Now, one of the reasons that I think all of those are, are one and the same, or at least more similar than they are different, is this right here. In verse 1, Peter lumps himself in with these elders. He says, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He doesn't place himself in an office above these other elders, the other respected people in the church that he's writing to. So to me, I mean, if anybody could do that, it would be Peter. And Peter has been placed in, in, a, in high esteem in the church. And so seeing him not place himself above anyone else, but put himself on the level of all the other elders, that to me speaks that, you know, maybe these are more similar than they are different in regards to uh, leadership in the church. And also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. The witness that he's talking about here, he says, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, that witness is not merely speaking of an eyewitness. Okay, that's that's one word. He's using a different word. He's using a word for someone who gives a testimony. So he's talking about this idea of a courtroom. You've got witnesses that you call, and they give a testimony of what they've seen. Now, not merely an eyewitness, but someone who has witnessed something and gives a testimony about it. So the people that he's writing to he says, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, these guys that he's writing to hadn't actually witnessed Christ in the flesh, most of them, right? And neither have we. 
I mean, we, we haven't witnessed Christ in the flesh on the earth. But he's saying we're still a witness. We still provide testimony to what Christ has done in our lives. You don't have to have seen him in the flesh to be a witness for him. Okay, so all of us are witnesses. And um, we are witnesses of the sufferings of Christ. And it's recorded for us in Scripture. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit makes these things known to us. Um, the Scripture uses the word oida. It's an intuitive knowledge for the things that the Spirit makes known to us. He makes known to us the things that we couldn't, we couldn't know by ourselves, but he gives us that intuition. So that's the kind of witness that he's talking about of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, I'm sure that he's writing this with a certain amount of excitement. You know, like, yeah, there are sufferings of Christ, and then we share in those sufferings while we're on earth. But we're not only partakers of that, of the sufferings of Christ, but we're partakers of the glory that will be revealed. And I think he's, <laughs> I think he's excited in writing this. And I'm excited reading it um, because it gives us hope. You know, there's not much hope in the world. And this, that we will be partakers of the glory of Christ, that gives us hope. Verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Now, these shepherd references, we've seen all throughout Peter's writing. And they would be very, very real to Peter. He would have seen Christ make similar comparisons of himself to a shepherd and us to sheep. Uh, These are experiences for Peter. And... You remember when Jesus was restoring Peter into the fold? He asked him three times if he loved him. The first two times, Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? Peter, do you agape me? Peter said, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I'm fond of you. Then the third time, Jesus stoops down to Peter's level. He says, Peter... Do you phileo me? Are you fond of me? I think that would have been a a shot to the heart. Do you agape me? Lord, you know that I'm fond of you. But sometimes I say the same thing. If I'm going through something tough and I'm asked, Kason, do you love me? Do you agape me? It's hard to say that back to him sometimes because you don't think it's fair. But don't think it's strange when these sufferings come upon you. Jesus, you know I'm fond of you, but can you say that I have a self-sacrificial love like he gave me? Now Peter is exhorting the leaders of the church to do the same that Jesus exhorted him to do. After the last time that Jesus asked him if he loved him, Jesus commanded him to feed my sheep. Now Peter is echoing this same exhortation to the leaders of the church. He says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. 
the teaching of the word, the studying, that's the fun part. And that's the part that I really enjoy. But the overseeing, the administration work, uh, keeping everybody in line, you know, that's more difficult. And it takes the heart to be very involved in that. And that's something that you cannot do by compulsion. You can't be forced into that role or it will eat you up. So Peter is telling these leaders, don't do this because you have to. Do this because you want to. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Philemon 1.14 says, But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be, in effect, by compulsion, but out of your own free will. So in sending Onesimus back to his master, um, this idea of free will versus compulsion came up again. And he didn't want to send Onesimus back to his master without the master's consent. Um, well, he, he wanted to keep Onesimus with him in, in Rome. And, um, but he knew that if he had kept him in Rome without asking Philemon if he could, then, you know, there, there might be something there that didn't need to be there between the two. So he wanted, he wanted it to be of Philemon's free will that he let Onesimus stay in Rome to serve. Um, and it's the same idea here. Just don't do something because you have to, but serve because you want to. Now, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. You've seen those preachers that drive a Porsche around, have a private jet, you know, and they're coming into church on Sunday and talking about triple tie to Sunday and all of this stuff, you know. So that is, that's not acceptable um, as a leader of the church. And, you know, unbelievers see that and they think the same thing. That's, that's not right. You know, and it's obvious to them. And I think it's obvious to most of us too, but uh, they see that and they see what the church, in air quotes, has become, and they don't want to, they don't want any part of that. So, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now, with that, you know, we don't want preachers driving around in Porsches and private jets, but, you know, on your part, it would be loving not to judge a pastor or a leader in the church for just, you know, buying a new pickup truck. Okay, so there's a balance there. You know, there are some things that you need to spend some money on, right? So let's not take that too far um, in judging the leaders. Verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. In Matthew twenty twenty five, 
Jesus speaks, and he's talking to his disciples right after they were, you know, kind of bickering. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't lord it over each other. Don't argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. That's, I mean, you don't need to worry about that. What you need to worry about is humbling yourself. And then that will come. That will come if you humble yourself. So again, this is, this is the mind of Christ that we've been talking about. In Revelation 2.6, uh, this is the only time that Jesus says, I hate this. He uses hate in Scripture. He talks about hate. But this is the only time when he says, I hate this thing. Okay, if you want to turn to Revelation 2.6, I'll read it with you. He says, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What are, what are the Nicolaitans and what are their beliefs? Nike is meaning to conquer or to domineer. Okay? And laitan is talking about the laity, the common people in the church, the congregation. The domineering of the congregation. It was the reinstitution of the law and of the priesthood. You remember the priest went between God and man. The Nicolaitans tried to reinstitute the priesthood. This is what Jesus hates. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Church leaders should be living in such a way that promotes a positive example to the rest of the church. Okay, they should be living in a manner that's consistent with Scripture. Now, yes, we mess up. But that's the exception to the rule. We are not living in sin. It's, it's really very simple. Um, and he says, but being examples to the flock. So, don't lord yourself over those, but instead be an example with how you live. Have any of y'all been on a cattle drive? Ever driven cattle? You ever tried to drive sheep? Doesn't work very well. You can drive cattle, can't drive sheep. You have to lead sheep. Okay, it's like herding cats. You've heard that. <laughs> herding sheep. Yeah, so being sheep, we have to be led. We can't be driven. Um, if you're trying to get a sheep to go somewhere, you can scoop up one of the younglings and you can carry it along. The rest of the herd will follow you. You lead the sheep. You don't drive them from behind. You're not shooting off and riding horses and, you know, rounding them up. So in the same way, um, he just says, but be examples to the flock. You know, don't drive them, lead them. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The chief shepherd, of course, is referring to Jesus Christ. And there are a few of these shepherd examples mentioned in Scripture. Jesus is called the chief shepherd here. He's called the good shepherd and the great shepherd in other places in Scripture. And all are used um, of Christ in a shepherding capacity to his people. And I think that the shepherding, I'm going to say theme, is speaking to his care for us. And we'll see the the caring come up again later in the chapter. Appears, you know, when the chief shepherd appears, that could be when he calls you home, uh, when you pass away, move on. Or it could be when you meet him in the air. When he appears to you, oh, none of us know which one it's going to be for us, uh, but we pray and we hope. The crown of glory. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, it says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, talking about the Olympians, the athletes of his day. But we for an imperishable crown. Now, Paul here realizes that the things that the world competes for is temporal. It will pass away with the earth. But we, meaning believers, we strive, we run the race for an imperishable crown, crown of glory, what Peter is saying. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory That does not fade away. Verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, elders is actually just talking about older people than you. Um, It's not specific of like a church elder, but literally other believers who are older than you. And there should be a certain reverence, a certain amount of respect coming from the younger believers to the older believers. Um, They are more experienced, uh, more versed in their faith, probably stronger in their faith, and they know some things that we young folks don't. Um, and I certainly try to keep that in mind uh, when talking to many of you. And I enjoy and I appreciate um, really anyone giving me advice. Now, of course, I sift through it in my mind and, you know, take some and leave some. But I appreciate everything that is afforded me. Now, young guys and gals, uh probably think you know everything, but you don't. Um, (laughs) I certainly don't know everything. Um, And when there's an apparent age gap there, it's easy to make that distinction between the older guy and the younger guy. The more experienced guy, less experienced guy. So in that regard, it's, it's kind of easy to make that denotation. And it's easier for a young guy to look up to an older guy in that situation. Now, 
when you get older, though, look what he says. He says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So even old people with old people still submit to each other. Okay, and this is the mind of Christ that's talked about in Philippians. Uh, to humble yourself, to exalt others above yourself. So all of you be submissive to one another. Now, everyone that you know has a slightly different skill set than you, and they're blessed with different spiritual gifts than you, a different combination of those. So everyone that you come in contact with in the church, I would even say outside of the church, you can learn from. And I have found that to be true. And I don't, I don't mean to sound rude in this, but even like the idiots, you can learn something from, right? I mean, if nothing else, you can, you know, pick something out. Yeah, exactly. So, yes, be submissive to one another, learn from one another, even, you know, experienced Christians from experienced Christians. And be clothed with humility. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, I'm going to read that real quick. He says, uh, this would be Paul, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, so in light of these things, God has, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus humbled himself in becoming a man and stooping down to our level. Now, while he was fully man, he was fully God. And there were certain things, though, that he could not do as a man and retain his mission. There are certain things that God seems to have kept from him from his knowledge on the earth. And we certainly know that Jesus was constantly going to the Father in prayer. Okay, so Jesus humbled himself, took the form of a man, and then God exalted Jesus because of that. And in in a very similar way, we must humble ourselves to then be exalted. God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, in light of these things, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, this word humble, uh, the grammar is very telling in this situation. And so... Real quickly, let's, on the count of three, let's just all humble ourselves. Ready? One, two, three. All right, we good? We're all humble? 
course not. It doesn't work like that. And the minute that you say, oh, yes, I'm humble, you're no longer humble. <laughs> so, yeah, the grammar in this instance is very telling. It's saying, therefore, allow yourself to be humble. Okay, so it's in the passive form. So you're not actually humbling yourself. You're allowing God to humble you. And that's really what it's saying. Therefore, allow yourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that's exactly what he does. He humbles you. And, and he will. So allow that to happen. Allow that sanctification to take place. Allow yourself to be placed under others. That he may exalt you in due time. I know sometimes I think that my time is due. I want to be exalted now. <laughs> but um, I do have to rest in the fact that God's timing is perfect. And I understand that. And I want that to govern how I interact with others and really just how I live my life in general. Now, I told you I think my time is now. Um, I'll tell you a little I would say embarrassing. I don't know if that's the right word. I was mean, okay? So you'll you'll see. Um, I was about two or three years old, and I was at my grandparents' house. They had me this little pedal car, okay? So I would get in this little metal car, and I would pedal around. It was, it was a good time. And my grandpa had a few classic cars in his garage, and I wanted my car to go in his garage with all of his cars. I wanted to be just like him. He said, no, no, you can't do that. You got you to gotta keep it in the little garage. So I was like, <laughs> I went up to my grandma and I said, Nana, when Poppy closes his eyes and never opens them again, I'm going to put my car in his garage. <laughs> uh, the innocence of a child right there. But... I see now his reasoning for not letting me put my little pedal car in his garage with his nice cars. Um, he didn't want me running into him, plain and simple. But I couldn't see that back then. I mean, I was completely blind to that. I just wanted what I wanted, and I wanted it now. But if we can understand that God's timing is better than our timing, he holds the past, the present, and the future right in the palm of his hands. He sees everything as it was, as it is, and as it's going to be. And if we can more fully grasp that, then we can turn things over to him a lot easier. And, I mean, really, it if you truly understand the power that he has, the knowledge that he has, and the care that he has for you, it should be no no trouble to turn anything over to him. Because he knows better than I do. He knows better than you do. So so let it go. Cast cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Now there are certain things that that God does not trust us with. 
our cardiac muscle, our hearts. They're governed by the autonomic nervous system. It means you don't have to think about it. Your heart just beats. Now, I'm glad that he kept that in his realm of control, not ours. I know some of you might not be here now if you had to remember to beat your heart. (laughs) But truly, if he can't trust us with beating our own hearts, why are we trying to hold on to everything else in our lives? He is so much uh, more knowledgeable than we are. In fact, he can't learn anything because he already knows everything. Imagine that, not being able to learn anything. He says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Matthew 11.30 says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So from the mouth of Jesus himself comes, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Verse 8, shifting gears a little bit. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 8, back up there, he says, Be sober, be vigilant. These are kind of synonyms. Okay, the sober is not really talking about drunkenness. It's more talking about soberness of mind. So you're calm-minded, you're focused, you're vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. This word adversary is a courtroom word. It talks about an opponent in a lawsuit. So it's someone that you're in a court battle with. And we know that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night. That's Revelation 12.10. So we are locked in this courtroom battle with Satan at the throne of Almighty God. Satan seeks to accuse us, the accuser of the brethren, Christians. And that word for accuser that's used in Revelation 12 is categoros. That's where we get our word category. Man, are we suckers for categories. Even we place our sins in little boxes, in little categories. And Satan is not ignorant of this. Uh, He's been around for a while, at least several thousand years. And he knows that if he can get us to categorize our sins, categorize our lives, then he can use that in the court before God. Now, he will go in and say something like, hey, did you see Kaysen down there? I mean, I know he's doing fine with that, but look at look at this other thing. Look at this category. He's not doing so hot right here. He got angry in traffic today. Did you see that? Oh, he he was fuming 
anger. If he can get us to buy in to the lie that one of these categories is not covered by the blood of Christ, he's got us. He can steal the joy that we're supposed to have in Christ through categories. Isn't that funny? The good news for us, and it comes in the very next verse in Revelation. Revelation 12, verse 11 says, And they overcame him. by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. We have overcome the accuser. He tells us how. He says, by the blood of the Lamb. And there's no category in my life or in yours that is not covered by the blood. If Satan can convince you that your past dependence on the bottle, your past sexual experiences, your past in how you've treated your spouse, if he can convince you that those things aren't covered by the blood of Christ, he has stolen the joy that you have in Christ. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. The parakletos, the comforter and the advocate. We have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, he says your adversary, your opponent in court, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Have you ever been to the zoo when they fed the lions? Uh, If you get a real hungry one, they might let out a real nasty guttural roar because they're excited to get their food. They're seeking what they can devour. That is the same, this word roaring has that connotation to it. This lion is seeking whom it may devour. Now, it says whom he may devour. Satan has to ask permission to get at you. And, of course, Job is an example of this, and that's well known but I want to point you towards something that you may not have seen before. In Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, it says this, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, speaking to Peter, Simon Peter, Indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. And when he says Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat, it switches to the plural. So he went from talking directly to Peter to talking to all of his disciples. Now he shifts back to the singular in speaking directly to Peter. But I have prayed for you, seeming to speak to Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. He says, indeed, Satan has asked for you. Interesting. Satan asked Jesus that he could shake the faith of the disciples. Jesus says, but I specifically prayed for you, Peter. And I prayed that your faith would not fail. Now we know that Peter's faith was shaken. He denied Christ three times, but his faith did not fail. He still had his faith on the other side of that experience, and he was restored into the flock by Jesus. So Satan asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, he may devour you. But, verse 9, resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Steadfast in the faith. There's the definite article the there. Um, It's not talking about necessarily the believer's faith. It's not talking about their faith. It's talking about the faith. The faith in the grace of God on which they stand. That is the faith that he's talking about here. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, how do we resist him? He says resist him. How do we do that? Well, this is how. In 1 John 2.14, John writes, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one, Poneros one, Satan. How did they overcome the wicked one? They were strong and the word of God abided in them. It's by the word of God. Now, Jesus knew this. He used scripture to go back and forth with Satan when he was being tempted. And I'll let you read that and go through that on your own this week. Um, But Jesus, well, first Satan misquotes scripture. Then Jesus correctly uses the word of God in defense of his faith. Steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. There is nothing new under the sun. Everything that you are being tempted with has been used for thousands of years to uproot Christians, to further condemn non-believers. It's the same game. Since the beginning, Satan has said, you will be as God. That same lie is being used. There's, there's only a few others. I mean, you can probably count on one hand the basic lies that Satan uses to destroy people. No temptation is overtaking you such as, except such as is common to man. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Satan loves to make you think that you're alone 
and whatever you're struggling with. But there is a certain comfort that comes with understanding the fact that you're not alone. There are people in this room that are going through similar trials and similar temptations that you are. So you're not alone in the suffering, but you have fellow believers to come alongside you. And if you know someone that's struggling in an area that you, you've had experience in, I'd encourage you to reach out to him. Just say, hey, if you need anything, I'm here. If you want to talk. I mean, that's, that's what we need to do as believers. Strengthen each other. But may the, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Talk about comforting. Verse 10 is comforting. It says that there's a far better place than we have on earth. And earth is fine for now. Some things about it that are not so fine. Some things about it that are pretty cool. I enjoy looking at God's creation. And I enjoy exploring that and really digging into it to see see God in his creation. That's pretty cool. That's in the world. Suffering is in the world. That's not so cool. But we have to deal with these things until we get to where we're going. After you have suffered a while, and these sufferings, they, they work to perfect us. They burn away the the excess flesh. They make us more like Christ. In the work of sanctification, God uses these sufferings to make us more like his son. So after we have suffered in these things a while, that Christ perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He says, I have written to you briefly, and I guess five chapters for Peter is fairly brief, but um, he also says, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Now, Peter, in writing this letter to Christians, is hoping to strengthen their faith in the gospel of grace, not in another gospel, not in works, but in grace. Verse 13, he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, there is some disagreement um, among people much smarter than myself about what Babylon refers to here. Some think that uh, Peter uses Babylon to speak of Rome. They think that he's writing from Rome here. Others think that he is actually in the geographical region of Babylon. To me, 
you can pick either one, whatever you feel like, because it doesn't change the effectual nature of the letter in our lives. So just having the letter um, and understanding it, that's worth it to me. I don't, I don't really care where it came from. Just straight up. <laughs> now, he, he does say, greet one another with a kiss of love. In the early, early church, that was commonplace. That was a common practice to greet each other with a holy kiss. It was soon thereafter, it, it really didn't last long, that they, this practice was being taken advantage of. Um, and of course, that's not surprising to us. Um, people are people, but they made it to where guys could only kiss guys and girls could only kiss girls. And then so that went on for a little bit. And then they were like, all right, that's enough of that. Christian side hug it is. <laughs> and, you know, fist bump, handshake. So today we would say greet one another with handshake or a Christian side hug of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that wraps up First Peter. So throughout this whole letter, we have seen... Um, the Holy Spirit communicating through Peter how we should submit. You remember all of the submission stuff? How we should submit to our bosses, masters, how we should submit to government, those who rule over us, how we should submit to our spouse. And all of these things governed by our submission to Christ. So if we are submitted to Christ, if he holds that preeminent place in our lives, all these other people that we have to submit to, that'll all be taken care of because we submit to Christ. We've also seen how we should react in trials. So how should we react in trials? Well, Peter says, don't think it's strange when they come upon you. Don't be surprised. It's normal in the Christian life to be faced with trials. It rains on the just and the unjust. So don't think it's strange. Trust God in the trials. You know, know that he, his timing is better than ours. You may not be able to put your car in the garage right now, but maybe later. You're to witness in your trials. It's a time of testing but the unbelievers are watching us as we go through trials. They're seeing how you handle these things. And they're taking notes. Oh, I don't want to be like that guy. Or he handled that with such grace and such compassion towards others. You know, that's, that's what we want to be known for. We should not be ashamed of our trials. You know, Job's friends tried to make him ashamed of the things that he was going through. They tried to pin it on him as uh, God's punishment for an unknown sin that Job, Job had committed. That wasn't the case. Um, that was not the case at all. So don't be ashamed in your trials. I thank God for giving us his word and the fact that it is so effectual in our lives. 
Um, it's an old document that speaks to us just the same today as Jesus spoke to his disciples. And man, what a good God. What a good God. Let's close today in a word of prayer.